This is John Grisham. Welcome to this week's edition of Book Tour. I am in Jackson, Mississippi at Lemuria Books with my old friend Johnny Evans, and I'm joined today by the novelist Greg Isles and Matthew Gwynn. I'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this series. Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to Book Tour. Today, I am in Jackson, Mississippi at one of my old haunts, Lemuria Bookstore, and hanging out with its owner, John Evans. My guests today are another old friend, Greg Isles, from Natchez, Mississippi, and a great young writer named Matthew Gwynn. John Evans founded Lemuria over 30 years ago in another location, and one I remember well. Here's Johnny. All three of these gentlemen are great friends of Lemuria. We've been friends ever since each one's basically been writing, and it is very special, a very great honor for me and for our bookstore and all our booksellers. And I'm not sure this is not one of the the highlights of this new century, now 17 years old, for my bookstore and our bookstore. So... Thank you, Johnny. It's always nice to be at Lemuria. Uh, I had my first signing at Lemuria in 1991 with the firm. Uh, the book came out in 1989, and I had a signing at Hal and Mal's. Uh, I don't know why we had a signing at Hal and Mal's, but <laughs> it was a great party. We sold a bunch of books, and uh, the truth is I was um, a buddy of mine who had been to Jackson. We, I lived in DeSoto County, a lawyer friend. He said, hey, I found a good bookstore in Jackson, he told me where it was, and I went to the bookstore, and I went to the wrong one. It was just down the, what was it called? Book something? Bookworm. Bookworm. And it was just right down from Lemuria when it was across the interstate. And I talked to the lady, and we became friends. And so um, she helped me with my first signing when Johnny was still on the other side of the highway over there. Uh, Johnny forgave me for that, for not using his store. And so when the firm came out, uh, we had a nice signing um, at Lemuria, and the book, as you know, became very popular very fast, and uh, the following year, we had an even longer signing at Lemuria, and longer and longer and longer. And after a 15-hour uh, signing one time, I think it was the chamber, we said, um, let's stop doing this, okay? We're, just, we're not that stupid. I, nobody wants to work 15 straight hours. And because you, you folks were nice enough to come stand in line, uh, that's flattering to a point, but it, we, we, we were awfully tired. And so we, we, uh, we cut back on the numbers and cut back on the signings, and, uh, and I finally stopped doing it. After probably 10 years ago, I just got tired, and, and I got lazy, and I didn't have to do it anymore, so I, I stopped touring altogether. I would go to five stores around here who helped me with a time to kill. Um, and so why am I doing it now? Um, it's, it's what I should be doing, first of all. Uh, best-selling authors should tour and go to bookstores and say thanks and, and meet you folks and say thanks to y'all. But really to support the bookstores because uh, it's a tough business and it's hard to keep one open. Uh, it's hard to keep one afloat, hard to make a buck, uh, even a big, powerful store like Lemuria. Uh, so I'm, I'm doing that. Um, I'm also, I got kind of bored and... Um, it was time to get out of the house for a while, and so uh, I'm, I'm going to 13 bookstores in the month of June. This is number um, number eight, and um, I've been you know to stores I've never been to before, and I'm at, at each stop I'm asking local writers to come in and um, and have a conversation about books, about writing, the process, publishing, reading, whatever. It's a podcast. There are no rules. There's no there's no script. There's no, there's no schedule. But also, I like to start each one of them by, talk, by talking to the bookseller and uh, finding out a little bit about the bookstore. You know a lot about it. Um, but think of all the millions of folks who are going to listen to the podcast. Um, they don't know about Lemuria. And so, Johnny, when did you open the store? We opened in 1975 in the quarter. Where? where? In the quarter. Where's that? Um, it was on the, the, the French Quarter. Okay, think, think about all the people out there who don't know where the quarter is in Jackson. The, the quarter used to be on Lakeland Drive. And there was um, the sexiest ladies' clothing store was back there. It was called uh, Up Your Alley, and then the best bar in town. And I thought, well, if I'm going to open a bookstore, 
pretty ladies and beverage. So that's what, uh, and it worked for about 90 days and then I was waiting tables in the bar. So the first bookstore didn't work? Well, it was a converted apartment. And uh, it worked, but it could have worked a lot better. You, you, you never closed it. You, you were never forced to close it. No, we moved it to Holland Village. What, what did you know when you opened the bookstore? What did you know about book selling? Nothing. Okay. So you had never worked in a bookstore? No. What were you thinking? Well, I, I, I like to read and uh, <laughs> and eat too. Yeah. And uh, I, got, I got paid meals in the bar, you know. And, uh, but I just thought there had to be other people that were having trouble finding their books in Mississippi. And I thought, well, I wanted to either open a record store or a bookstore, and Bebop opened in 74, and I said, well, that was my decision. What was your uh, initial capital investment? $8,000. Where'd you get the money? Uh, I took 4000 that I had kind of saved up, and Mel, who opened it with me, had we threw in 4000 and then we built bookshelves, and Mel painted them and painted the sign that's hanging out there. And um, I, I waited tables, and she ran the checkout counter, which wasn't very difficult. We didn't have a lot of customers. Yeah. <laughs> so what'd you spend eight thousand dollars on? Inventory. Books. Books. Inventory. Okay. Yeah. It was. I, I made a, a, a funny mistake. One of them. I started writing publishers and calling them on the phone and um, getting their business policies, and they came to our apartment before we even got the bookstore open. And it had. I wanted to do art books because I had a hard time finding art books. So I thought I'd do a big order with Abrams. Well, I misread the order form, and it said rather than buy one of a $20 book, you had to buy six. So I bought a bunch of six of $20 books. $20 books in 1975 were, was an expensive book. Yeah. So I had uh, one-eighth invested in art books. <laughs> Still got <laughs> Which I moved to Highland Village. <laughs> Did you ever reach a point in the early days when you thought about quitting? No. You, ne you never thought about closing the store? No. Never have. Uh, how long did it take to show a profit? Still still waiting? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, thanks to you. <laughs> we, we, uh, no, about five or six years. So you guys were pinching pennies for five or six years. Were you slowly growing the store, the, the inventory, the mm -hmm. customer base? We are putting everything back in the inventory. When we moved to Highland Village, the first year we um, showed a profit, I bought the uh, photograph of Hemingway. And then the next year, I bought the photograph of Faulkner. And that's, what, that's kind of where the presence that, and we finally, I guess we got above water about 1981. 81. When did you move across the road to where you are now? 1988 on April Fool's Day. <laughs> and that was a good move? It was when we found John Grisham's books. <laughs> And now you own the building and everything else, right? Well, you know, we, we, we were part of building the building. Uh, so describe to us the book scene today, the retail book scene in Jackson with, with um, the superstores, the discount houses. Um, some are here. Some have closed. Uh, have, uh, have, did they make you stronger? Um, I think they made us a better bookstore. I don't know if they made us stronger, especially financially, but... When we moved in 88, I knew that we had to get a larger store um, because the box stores were coming. They were already moving into California and, and Colorado around the tattered cover. And so we were able, I knew every Christmas we could get, we would be in more stability. And we made it to 1993 when Books A Million opened up across the street. And then Barnes & Noble came and around 97 or 98, and then Borders around 2001, 2000. I'm sorry, who? Borders. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I remember them, yeah. Yeah, I, was kind of, I wasn't disappointed when they You know, I, when, I, when I broke in the early 90s, 25 years ago, it was, um, the war was with the chains. In yeah. fact, the ABA sued Barnes & Noble and lost uh, in the early 1990s because- 98. Of, was it 98? Yeah. yeah. Oh, were you a plaintiff? <laughs> were you involved in that lawsuit? I was, uh, a, I was the last bookseller that had to take the stand. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. But nowadays, you know, so many of the, the big stores are gone. 
and 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 the competition is with Amazon, the internet. That's where that's where we all shop these days. And you know, I I I guess you could say that, and it is. But realistically, realistically, I think the good bookstores competition with how good they can be, and how much how much better we can be as a bookstore, and. That's what I've got so many great young booksellers and I keep telling them it's not it's don't worry about every everything else that's going on. Just do the best job you can and we'll live and we'll live and die by what we can do. Yeah. And that's the way I look at it. Well, we I, you know, I've had these conversations for years and you, and you never you were never worried about competition from anybody. You saw each new uh, superstore or each new website or whatever as a challenge to make your bookstore better, which you have done. It is a gorgeous bookstore, and yeah. it gets prettier every time I see it. Yeah. That's, that's very kind, but once again, my young booksellers are great, and I'm not so sure I don't have the, the best collection of young booksellers that I've ever had at one time. Yeah. <clears throat> It's a it's a great staff. I've I've been I spent the afternoon there signing books and uh, a wonderful staff and uh, very very loyal and fine great customers. Thanks to all of you guys for being there and thanks to you Johnny for the store. Uh, I'm joined with uh, today with Greg Giles and Matthew Gwynn. We're going to talk about um, I'm not sure what we don't have a script. We just uh, we talk about this and that. Uh, I'll start with you, Greg. Um, what are you working on? I got a comment before I answer John's question. When he, when he talked about his touring, I want to remind people, John has the rarest problem in all of publishing. He's like the Beatles after they played Shea Stadium and decided they just couldn't meet the demand anymore. That is not a normal writer's problem, okay? But in 93, when my first book came out and I went on tour, I was sort of going along behind John in that same little group of stores that had helped him in the beginning. And I noticed things. I, I sort of patterned myself after John. And one thing was on the bulletin board in every store was a little stationery with John Grisham's name on it where he had thanked them. And I mean, it was displayed like a holy relic from the crucifixion. I kid you not. But the second thing was, I can't remember which store. I won't get the lady in trouble. She said, Greg, you know, that John Grisham, he is such a nice fella. But honey, he wasn't wearing any socks. <laughs> And I thought of it because he's still not wearing socks. And I, I realized from then on, I didn't have to wear socks at my book signings. So, Greg, what are you working on? <laughs> I'm working on a book set in Oxford, Mississippi, a town you know a little bit about. It's actually set at Ole Miss. It's kind of a noir thing. The main character is a guy who gives $100 million to the school for a purpose I won't say. This is fiction, right? It, yeah. And, and, it, and it's... Uh, the antagonist is a writer in residence at the school who's, I won't say who it's molded on a little bit, but it's going to be a lot of fun, especially for Mississippi people, I think. Is it uh, a mystery, a crime fiction? Yeah, a sort of like a noir, like uh, Body Heat or The Postman Always Rings Twice. Yeah, like I mean, you're, you're pretty dark. You, 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 like, <laughs> you, you like the crime and the violence and stuff like that. We'll get to, we'll get to your trilogy in a minute. Okay. So, so when, is, uh, when are you going to finish? A deadline is 11 months from today. So that's the other thing John told me. I only met him a few times over the years. The other thing was write a book a year. And I've struggled to do that. I have found it impossible, but I tried. But that was the wisest advice he ever gave me because I've seen people fall by the wayside who didn't try to hew to that to some degree. Or what we've seen also in the last 25 years since you and I started doing this, and that's why I told you this, and I've told other people, if you're lucky enough to publish a book that becomes a bestseller, and that's that's in, in itself quite an accomplishment. But if you if you're lucky to get to that point, uh, you can't sit back and enjoy that. If you want to have a long career in publishing, uh, you've got to write the next book real fast, and you've got to write three or four good books, the best stuff you can write, three or four or five years in a row to get your name established. I've seen a lot of writers, big writers, who will take off a year or two or three or four, and it's easy to get to be forgotten about. And that's why you've got to work hard in the, in the early days to get established. Even if you're not selling a lot of books, if you get published, 
you got to come out with the next book if you're going to build a readership. And it's, it's crucial. And that's, that's why I told you that. And you wisely followed my advice for a change. <laughs> because, because nobody else does. What are you working on, Matthew? Uh, just finished it Monday, actually. A novel called The Trail. Uh, it's set on the trace. A, a Virginia plantation owner takes all of his slaves to Natchez to sell them. Uh, in 18, I think I said 1848. And uh, based on little-known historical thing that, uh, that actually there were that many African-American slaves transported that manner to Natchez or New Orleans. It was 10 times the number of the Trail of Tears. Because they had burned up the soil in Virginia with exactly. tobacco and North Carolina. Exactly. And they were needed... Uh, Here, yeah. where the Delta was being cleared out and uh, cotton was king. So that's, that's the story? That's the story. When does it come out? Uh, I don't know. I'm kind of, uh, uh, Norton gets the first look at it. Okay. So we'll see. Give us real quick the plot of, since you've only written two books, uh, you're so far behind us. Uh, <laughs> give us a plot of your first novel. Uh, a medical school is celebrating its renovation of the, the uh, oldest building on campus, and they uncover the bones of hundreds of dissected bodies. And, uh, we flash back in chapters to when the school bought a slave and taught him to be a resurrectionist or a grave robber and told him to target the African-American cemeteries. And so the question for the slave, whose name is Nemo, is how are you going to be a man under these? And Nemo is not named after the clownfish, by the way. That was uh, Jack the Ripper signed notes to Scotland Yard, Nemo. It's Latin for no man. And uh, so how is Nemo going to survive? And then in the contemporary sections, how is this doctor at the school going to handle this? Is he going to put it, shove it back under the rug like the administration wants or face the past? And this is based on a, roughly based on a, real, on a true story. Correct. In Georgia, right? In Georgia, Medical College of Georgia. And how was it handled by, in, in real life? There it was handled honorably. They called in, uh, much like UMC has done, they called in anthropologists and uh, stopped the progress on the building. Um, but that doesn't make for a good novel, and Augusta doesn't make for a good setting. So uh, I, I moved it to Columbia, South Carolina, and had the school, the fake school, the fictional school, attempt to cover up. Okay. And the scribe is your second novel? Correct. And when, roughly, what's the plot summary? That's a uh, disgraced Atlanta former detective is called back because a serial killer is stalking, apparently uh, targeting the African-American wealthy population of Atlanta uh, right before their International Cotton Exposition, which also did take place. Based on a true story. Based on the, the killer is entirely fictional, but the uh, International Cotton Exposition was basically the first World's Fair. They even invited Sherman back to Atlanta. If you, I'm a native of Atlanta, so I don't mean to offend anybody, but nobody chases a buck like Atlanta. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so so you, you are finishing yours or starting yours? Starting. 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 What's taking so long? <laughs> well, John, I just got off the tour of the trilogy, man. <laughs> I'm slow by your standards, but not by normal I'm kidding. Standards. I'm kidding. You deserve a rest after that trilogy, okay? That was 2,400 pages of uh, some pretty heavy stuff, right? You're right. And, and, okay, let's get back to what inspired that, and how were you able to put together a plot so complicated that you could maintain the tension, the narrative tension with all the characters and subplots and all that you put into it, uh, for that length of time? I think because on one hand, it was an up-close plot about a family on one level, and then there was the large tapestry plot of the civil rights murders from the period. And between those two things, there was enough going on that I think, I think people were held in by the family plot. You know, the son trying to find out, is my father the beloved character, the physician of the town that everyone's worshipped for years, or is he something darker than that? I think that's what everybody hung on to find out. How long did you, uh, I mean, how long did it take to develop the, again, the plot, something that complicated? 
Well, you know, I tried to write it as one book, John, at first. And sure that, you did. And that's, sure, yeah. that's hard to believe. That's really hard to believe. And that's when I had my wreck, really. I was coming to the end of, to the deadline. I knew I couldn't get it all in one book. I was fighting with my publisher, and it was not a good time, and that led me into the accident. And when I woke up out of that coma, I just said, I'm not going to give a damn what the publisher says, my agent says, or anybody else. And I lost my contract, lost my publisher. So then I had all the time in the world. I just sat down with no money and started woodshedding it out. It took a while. So the accident had a huge impact on your writing. Yes, huge impact. It made me it made me drop at least for a little while that commercial imperative that, as you know, it's always there normally. Yeah. But when you come so close to dying, you you just sort of you can set it aside for a while, you know. And so that was the inspiration? That was it. No, not the inspiration for the story, but the inspiration to, um, to, 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 do it justice. to think in terms of something that big. Yeah. Yeah. You going to do that again? Nope, never. <laughs> <laughs> Look, when I started that, John, I, I was young. My kids were in middle school. I had two legs. Now I have one leg. My kids are in or out of college, and I look like Santa Claus. That's enough. <laughs> I'm done. Okay. Can I ask what caused the accident? Uh, yeah, I was, you're a lawyer. You'd have, you'd have made a lot of money off this. I mean, actually. I practiced for 10 years, and I still get excited when we talk about car wrecks. <laughs> when I was in a car wreck, I found out later my accident was putting, like, lawyer's bulletins all over the country. That's a scary thing. Now, I was, I was uh, going to look at paint colors. How's that for a great mission? At a new house on 40 acres across Highway 61. I just looked at paint colors. I was sitting there thinking about the book. And I just pulled out onto 61 going about two miles an hour. And a girl in a pickup truck hit my driver's door going 70. So it, it was my fault for drifting out. But she never even hit her brakes or anything. I mean, it was just bad luck. Who sued who? She sued me, ultimately. I, yeah. I would hope so. I, mean, I, would, <laughs> I would sue you. They, um, <laughs> listen, the best case I ever had was on Highway 61 in Natchez. Really? Yeah. It was about 30 years ago in a... Um, a van load of folks from DeSoto County, church folks, were going to a service somewhere over in Louisiana. And just north of Natchez on Highway 61, uh, they got hit head on. And there was probably eight people in the van. Luckily, no one was killed. A lot of injuries. And I had a contact back in DeSoto County who knew them. And I signed up. Uh, I think I got all the cases. I mean, I was also an ambulance chaser, so I, I mean, I was pretty aggressive, pretty aggressive when it came to finding cases. Oh, and um, we had we filed a lawsuit in Adams County Circuit Court. And we did depositions down there for for a long time, and finally got nice settlements out of it. But I have I have fond memories of car wrecks on Highway 61. I'm surprised but you I'm didn't sure, try to move it to Jefferson I'm, County. I'm sure, knowing you, you I'm there. sure you don't. You don't. You don't. You don't <laughs> have right. fond memories. You're right. So that was again. That was a that had a profound impact on that being that close to death. Yeah, and the real issue now for me is, for some reason, without me expecting it at all, this trilogy has suddenly, before everybody treated me like a thriller writer, which is I'm proud to be a thriller writer, but after this trilogy, suddenly they're making all these literary comparisons and things, and I find myself in this weird position of if I just go back and write what I feel like writing, this body heat type thriller or something, am I... Am I stepping away from a, a something people expect? You right, know, that's the right. kind of a quandary I'm in. Right. John, do you mind if I butt in with... It's a podcast. You can say anything. Okay. You can ask anything. There's no script. I, there are no rules. You can get naked. It's, <laughs> yeah. I will Nobody not. Nobody can see you. <laughs> um, it, back, I think it was the first annual Oxford conference for the book. You and Stephen King talked, and uh, Barry Hanna moderated, and John said something on this literary thriller thing he said you know i would kill to be able to write a sentence like barry hannah and barry said thank you john i'll remember that the next time your jet breaks the sound barrier <laughs> while i'm accepting an award from the tupelo society for the word <laughs> that was a good talk you know it turned it turned in it was uh, 25 years ago it turned into a riot of an event because stephen king is extremely funny and quick and so plugged into popular culture. He watches every movie, TV show, reads every book, I mean, the music, whatever. And he is, uh, you, you get him going, he's hard to handle. And um, so because we had so much fun, um, we've been on stage 
together three or four times since then, literary festivals, library events, uh, a year ago in Florida, his library down there. And it, it really turns into something that we enjoy uh, playing off each other and, and, and the audience really enjoys. And we take a lot of questions from the floor and we'll take questions from you guys in a minute. There was one, one idea I had was to um, invite Stephen. This was about a year ago. I said, hey, let's, let's tour together. And let's do a podcast because we have so much fun and, you know, and, and go to bookstores and, and talk to crowds. And it sounds like a lot of fun. He said, no. And I said, um, you know, are you sure? I mean, you know, so we had a, we had words, uh, not words, but we went back and forth and he just didn't want to do it. And that's fine. I, he, he, he toured last year and, and I think he had a good time, but he got tired of it. So we would, he, he's not on my podcast. Okay. And he, you know, I'm not going to have him on my podcast, but that, that's where the idea came from of, of traveling around and doing what I'm doing bookstores and having conversations like, like this and, and including the audience. So that's what we're going to do in a little bit. Support for book tour with John Grisham comes from audible inside the vault. The work was indeed slow, but determined. The first four open drawers revealed more old manuscripts, some handwritten, some typed, all by important writers who didn't matter at the moment. They finally struck gold in the fifth drawer when Denny removed an archival storage box identical to the others. He carefully opened it. A reference page inserted by the library read, Original Handwritten Manuscript of the Beautiful and Damned, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Bingo, Denny said calmly. He removed two identical boxes from the fifth drawer, delicately placed them on the narrow table, and opened them. Inside were original manuscripts of Tender is the Night and The Last Tycoon. If that story from John Grisham's Camino Island made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com slash Grisham. That's audible.com slash Grisham. We've got time for a few questions. This always livens up the discussion. Yes, sir. The question is, my, I started a, a kid's book series uh, seven or eight years ago called Theodore Boone, Kid Lawyer. And the question is, why did I do that? Um, the question, uh, my daughter was teaching school. And uh, she had a group of fifth graders, and she was home for dinner one, one weekend. And uh, we were having a family conversation, as we often do, about books and reading. And that's the way my kids grew up with a lot of books around. And she asked me if I thought I could write suspense for kids. And I'd never thought about that. She said she could. She had not been able to find a lot of good suspense for kids. They have, you know, they have a lot of books, fantasy, historical fiction, whatever. But she didn't. She did not, did not like any of the suspenseful stuff. And I took that as a challenge. And um, so my wife and I were buying books for her library at school, and we bought a, a full collection of the Hardy Boys mystery series that I loved when I grew up, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, and I realized there were 84 Hardy Boys mystery books still in print. And I thought, hmm, <laughs> that's a good idea. Oh, God. Oh, boy. I'm not sure I can write 84, but they go on forever. And that's where I, that, that was inspired, always by money, I guess. <laughs> Have you thought about it, you guys? Actually, it's interesting that you pick Matthew for this because doing what we do sometimes, John has all the power in the world, but most writers, they don't like you to get outside the box, you know, of what you're doing that's making the publisher money. And I did have an idea some years ago set in Victorian England about a secret society of orphans. I won't go into it, but it's a really great story, like the stories I love, like Count of Monte Cristo and things like that. And uh, I talked to Matthew about five months ago about possibly collaborating on this and doing it outside the boundaries of normal, you know, my own deal and all that. So we may go that way. I said, yes. <laughs> so have you ever collaborated? No, no. Matthew? Uh, with editors, I've had a couple of really, uh, vigorous editors, uh, but no, I haven't collaborated. It, it, I look forward to it. I hope yeah, it happens. I've never collaborated. I mean, I've, um, no. I've written three or four screenplays, none of which got filmed, by the way, because it's not what I want to do. 
um, with a collaborator with some help from somebody else. And it was a, it was not a pleasant experience for me. And I mean, the actual writing of a screenplay is not a pleasant experience because I, it's just it's a different set of muscles. And I'd I'd rather be writing a novel, uh, but I, I can't I can't see collaborating. You know, it's a very lonely profession. We, you have to do it by yourself. Uh, and I don't know how I would work with somebody else collaborating. So, no, I've never never been tempted. I've got too much stuff I want to write anyway. All right, good question. Yes, sir. Uh, great question. We hear it all the time. Uh, do we get writer's block? And um, if we do, uh, how do you cure it? Uh, so, Matthew? Well, I teach creative writing at Bellhaven, and I told my students – uh, I'm in my just finished my first year of it, and I told them one day I had an inspiration. I said, "Look, this is worth your whole year's tuition, so write this down." I just figured it out after 47 years. Writer's block is like the boogeyman in your closet or under your bed when you're a kid. The more energy you feed it, the more real it gets. Pretend it's not there, and instead of going to sleep, get writing. So uh, that works about 40% of the time in practice. <laughs> but yeah, I, I wrote my second novel under contract. Um, my first novel, your first novel, nobody but your, your spouse and your friends cares about. And, uh, but I got a two-book deal, and I had to write the scribe under contract. And with a deadline, my editor was very gracious when I went six months over the deadline. I think that's actually pretty good if you're not in the giant leagues like these guys, but uh, just couldn't afford to have writer's block. Just had to, uh, I try to get 700 words a day, five days a week. I don't know how Stephen King writes seven days a week. That would wear me down. But uh, if you just break it down to that, and um, a friend of mine, another Mississippi writer, Michael Ferris Smith says, don't write the novel sequentially if you're blocked. Create a new Word document or pages document and write a scene farther down. And so when I finished my novel Monday, I was doing a lot of copying and pasting, which probably makes these guys think it's a piece of garbage. But, <laughs> but uh, I had written scenes. Just write what you can and aim for whatever your particular word count is. Um, do you have a word count, you guys? Greg? I, I break every rule when it comes to that. I mean, a good day for me is 3,500 words. You know, I'm, I'm kind of crazy. But I've never had writer's block. I won't ever live long enough to write the ideas I have like you. You know, it just never stops. Now, I'm going to tell a, a quick story on Willie Morris. John and I were both part of the program where Willie Morris was writer in residence at Ole Miss. We were in different years. But Willie used to talk about writer's block all the time. And people would ask about it. He would go on. And I guess he was blocked. And one of the speakers, you know, he brought down James Dickey and William Steyer and all these people. One of the speakers was uh, the guy who wrote a separate piece, John Knowles. And somebody brave raised their hand during question and answer and asked John Knowles about writer's block because Willie always talked about it. And John and Knowles was an old man, very lot of dignity. And he looked he just looked confused. And he said, writer's block that that doesn't exist that's just a figment of the imagination for writers who can't write or something it was so it was so awkward and embarrassing i i never forgot that anyway i shouldn't i, sh- I wouldn't have told that except willie's passed on now so i think willie was always blocked uh, so, by something by something yeah uh you know i'm lucky I, i've yet to have a bad case of it I, I i'm always i have the opposite problem uh, to think about, decide which book is next. Uh, I have a lot of ideas. Uh, the ideas come from uh, uh, watching the legal system the way I do, the penal system, the court system, uh, lawyers, judges, trials, courts, you know, things like that. that, I, that I just watch by, by, I don't even think about it. You know, like the Cosby trial was last week. You know, I'm going to I'm going to read about what happened with the jury. I'm I'm intrigued by cases and trials and um, issues. Um, and again, there's a long list of story ideas, most of which will never work, but they, they I accumulate them. And I'm always you know thinking about what book is going to be next. Um, you know, I write um, usually a, th- a thousand words a day. Uh, sometimes I'll get 2,000, depending. I think if I get 2,000 words a day, I'm going awfully fast. 
Uh, but again, if you do a thousand uh, a day, five days a week, uh, with a lot at the end, you know, you can finish a book pretty fast. Greg, you told me years ago, uh, and I always thought this is really weird about your style. <laughs> you start writing at midnight. Yeah, generally I do. I mean, I, I've met a lot of writers, and you're the only one who they're all, almost always drunk or passed out by midnight. No, <laughs> I sleep all day, work all night because it's totally quiet, and I can get obsessive. I get in sort of like a flow state, like an athlete is how I think of it. I don't even start a book until it's just busting out of me. And then I can sit down and just write for eight hours straight. And just sometimes I stay up 24, even 36 hours in the last four or five weeks of a book and just and write the whole time. How many cases of tab? Yeah, unending tab. You know, if you're going to write all night long and drink tab, I'm not sure we can consider you to be a true Mississippi writer. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bourbon. That's I'll, just I'll lie and that say just bourbon. When do you drink bourbon? During the, you can't no, do I, I drink gin mostly when I drink. Okay, I'm not being nosy, but when do you enjoy drinking if you're, if you're up all night? Well, you got to remember, I played in bar bands for a lot of years. I got over my drinking when you do that. You, 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 you know what I mean? What time do you write, Matthew? First thing in the morning. Uh, try to go from, uh, as I think it was Edna O'Brien said, one dream state to another. And um, try to uh, finish out go to lunch and see if I can come back if I have the option, but definitely the mornings. You mentioned uh, an editor a while ago, sort of in a disparaging way. Uh-oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And this is what writers go through. You finish the book, you work hard on it, you turn it in, and before you know it, you've got the editor, you know, wanting to make a lot of changes. And, and there's, I mean, I never fight with my editor, but there's, there can be friction. And, and I know some writers who have sold enough books, they turn the books in and they say, basically, don't touch it. And that's a disaster. You can, you can read the book and you can tell that it has not been edited by, by a professional. Uh, and then you get to the copy editors uh, who, who are really um, professionals who can find so many mistakes in your, in your work and it'll drive you crazy. Things you never thought of. Things you never thought of and, and things you should catch and... and from physical descriptions to numbers to locations, it, it, it's it's, but it's 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 easy to sort of carry a grudge <laughs> against editors as a whole, as a whole race, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not saying I do, but uh, do you guys? It's like you said about collaboration. At the root of it, when you do what we do for a living, and I don't mean this sacrilegiously, you get used to being God of that novel. You you want to do it, it gets done. You want to kill somebody, they die, yeah. and so. <laughs> Very few people get any say over what we do. So when somebody does push back, you just sort of naturally, yeah. hey, this is none of your business. That's what you feel like, you know? Yeah, I didn't mean to be disparaging. I've got one of the best editors in the business, but it, it, there is an antagonism in it. There is the stage where you're so fatigued where you want to just, but it's like hiring a personal trainer. You know, the one who says you look great, the extra weight suits you is <laughs> is not going to help you get in the best shape and that editor won't last long in the business the good editors are, are the ones who are known to um not enjoy conflict but to go after writers to make you're, you're trying to make a manuscript better mm-hmm. and uh it, but again by the by that time in the process you it's hard to really uh, think kindly of them yes ma'am back here the question is, uh, Penn Cage's life has been so tragic so far. What's next? Surely not a fourth volume. No, you're not talking about n- not another one, are you? What's next for Penn Cage? Well, because initially this was supposed to be the end, but because I don't want to give any spoilers, but because Penn's father ended up where he did, that's all I'll say at the end of the trilogy. Um, a lot of people are angry at me, and so there may be one poor volume to resolve the things that were left unresolved. I, I, I wouldn't ever do that out of commercial imperative, but the letters just come every day. So I think there will be one more. Not next, though. Yes, ma'am. The question is, uh, I collect rare books, and, sh- and the question is, uh, my most prized possession? Uh, yeah. Uh, Johnny and I were talking about that today because I was looking at some of his stuff for sale, as I always do in his office, because he's got some great first editions and rare books. Um, probably 15 years ago, my wife, for Christmas, contacted Johnny, and he had a, he had a copy of uh, The Sound of the Fury, and uh, that was my Christmas gift. And that is, uh, 
a very special, and it was in great shape. A lot of these, you know, even the rare books like like The Sound of Fury or Name One, The Great Gatsby or Catching the Rye, the really valuable books um, can lose almost all their value if they're not in good shape. If the dust jackets are torn, they've been worn out, they've been in libraries, they're soiled, they're damp, whatever. But, you know, they've got to be uh, in really fine condition to hold their value. And Johnny had one that year, and it's in my my uh, my little vault right now. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, the question is, how did I come up with the title of my book, A Time to Kill? Um, it was a last-second deal. I mean, it was uh, the working title was Death Nail, which nobody liked. Uh, I didn't know the book was going to get published. So, uh, you know, I, I shipped it off to New York. And I went through the submission, rejection. This is before the Internet, so it was all done by hard copy. And finally found an agent, found a publisher and an editor. And no one, and my, my first editor uh, was a guy named Bill Thompson, who used to be with Doubleday, and he was with a small press. He also was the first editor for Stephen King, and he was a great editor. A thousand, uh, Time to Kill was a 1,000 pages long in manuscript, and they cut a third of it, which was a year of my life. And I said, I'm not doing that again. Uh, and I learned the value of plotting and planning and outlining and thinking about the story. Um, but I didn't have a title. And we went on and on and on. And I've, I've actually gone to New York on two occasions since then to go to the, to the publisher's office, shut the door, lock the door, and he'll say, we've got to have a title by noon because we're going to press. And so for me, it's often a very... Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's never easy. It's never easy. Um, uh, Camino Island was like the fifth title this year. We kept going back and forth and, and you like some hate some, but it's, it's, it's almost never easy picking a title. I want to hear what you guys have to say about that. About, t- about titles, about picking titles. Yeah. I've had, I've had knockdown drag outs over titles and I've lost as many as I've won. Believe it or not, I wanted to call um, I wanted to call Mississippi Blood White Man's Burden. That's awful. And they wouldn't let me call it that because, because they said Walmart wouldn't sell it. <laughs> so that, that tells you how decisions get made in this business. Matthew? Well, I've had it easy and I had it tough. When I found out that a grave robber for a medical school was called a resurrectionist. That's a pretty good title. Uh, you know, um, that was easy. Uh, but my the scribe... My editor did not like the working title, uh, which was Dark Enough for Stars. What do you guys think about that? I like the scribe. Okay. (laughs) Well, our our dining room wall, I I collaborate with my wife on some of this stuff. When you go down that literary rabbit hole of really arty titles, you usually go wrong. I've done the same thing. It's from a quote from Emerson. But uh, anyway, we we had post-it notes covering our dining room wall of alternative titles and uh eventually she came up with the scribe so i got to give that to her did the pelican brief ever have a different title yeah the brief really yeah you oh, needed pelican the, brief after, way better you the, needed yeah, that pelican better. well it was it was the the firm was a working title that i had no idea would ever stick but i mean i didn't have anything else because i'm i'm really i really struggle with titles i mean we all want to use to kill a mockingbird. We want, you want the great titles, you know, Sound in the Fury, you know, Catch in the Rye, the, the, great, the great titles. Silence well, of the Lambs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we, you, you can't think of those. We, we, we're, not, we're not that creative, I guess. But when the, firm, um, when the firm stuck and then when the book became popular, um, I was determined to write the next book fast and get it out. And I was, I was working on the Pelican Brief, and it was called The Brief. And the book, the book after, because I love the one-word titles. The next, the next book was going to be the client, and then the row as death row, which was a chamber. Okay, so I was really getting the small titles. Okay, <laughs> and um, I, I, it was a long time ago. I can't tell you the history of who, who did not like the brief. I think my agent at the time didn't like it or thought it needed something, and so the Pelican brief. Um, you know, I somehow thought, I guess I thought of it. I don't remember. Back to answer your question about a time to kill, I don't, you know, it, it comes from Ecclesiastes in the, uh, in the Old Testament uh, for everything, there's, every time there's a season. Uh, I don't, I, I guess I came up with that, but I, I don't really, it was 30 years ago. Somebody did, but could have been my wife. Which is a question for you guys. Um, who, who's your first reader? 
my wife or and or my sister, whichever one is least irritated with me <laughs> at the time. Well, I don't want to go into all that marital stuff, you know. But, uh, <laughs> if you got problems, we'll talk about them later. But, I, I your sister? Yes, my little sister. She, uh, my first novel didn't make it. It was a novel about catfish grabbling and grave robbing. You see, I've got kind of an obsession, and I wrote it. And uh, I, I, she always wants to read my stuff. She's two years younger. And I said, well, did it scare you? And she said, no, it was really macabre, but it didn't scare me. So then I wrote The Resurrectionist. And I said, did this one scare you? And she said, it was very eerie. But it, no, it didn't scare me. And I thought, man, I am really over the hill if I can't scare my little sister anymore. So that's how the scribe got as violent as it did. And my wife... Uh, reading the manuscript was on page 120 and uh walked through the bedroom because you you know that feeling when your spouse is reading your stuff you know you're just hanging on everywhere and she looked up and she said i cannot believe i've been married to you for 23 (laughs) years so it got kind of scary i hope greg who's your first reader the guy the editor who discovered me whatever that means back in like 91 when the book auction happened and he, he left publishing. He's a freelance editor in California now, but on every single book I've ever done, I pay him to just talk on the phone and he's the first one that, that reads it every time, you know, and, he, and he's working on it with me sort of during the, you know how it goes. I tell uh, aspiring writers and students uh, whenever I talk to them or I don't like to give advice uh, because it's, it's um, easy to give and routinely ignored, you know, it's just kind of a waste of time. But it's important to have someone who you're close to, somebody uh, who, who wants you to succeed, somebody who really loves you, uh, but who can be very honest about what you're doing. And it can be a spouse, a, you know, a sister, a, a teacher, or, or anybody, who, but somebody who really wants you to succeed but can be honest with you. And that's, uh, that's not always easy to find someone like that. Back here in the back, Yes. Uh, the question is uh, deals with the movies, and the question is how do we feel about the changes that are made? Um, it's going to be something different, and and you better know that up front. Uh, and if you don't like that, then don't do it. Uh, when you sell it, they give you some money, and 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 they take it and they go make the movie, and you hope it's a good movie. Uh, it's going to be something different. They have to make tremendous number of changes in any kind of. We can write a you know a big thick novel, especially Greg can. Um, <laughs> you know, eight hundred page doorstops. You know, is what he specializes in. <laughs> but a screenplay is one hundred and twenty pages. You know, for a two hour movie, one hundred and twenty, and it takes a lot of skill by you know talented screenwriters to to shrink that down and keep the core plot and the core care you know it's, it's not easy to do i've tried it i've tried it with my own stuff and couldn't do it uh so there, there's going to be a lot of changes and you know changes are good if 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 they keep the, the basic story and they're trying to make it better every time i've read a screenplay based on one of my uh books every it's happened every time i've read something and i've stopped and said i wish i'd thought of that I wish I'd written that, okay? You know, so you, there, there's a lot of good stuff there that they, that they put in. Uh, but again, I've, I've been lucky. I've had uh, nine books adapted. Uh, eight of the movies were fun to watch. So you want to know which one was not? Uh, I, I'm not going to bring that up. But uh, <laughs> Come on, come on. Well, Chamber was a bad movie from day one. And, it just, you know, I told them that they're, I read the screenplay and I said, you guys are really screwing this up and, it, things deteriorated. They made the movie anyway based on the screenplay. And I said, okay, I have nothing to do with it. And it was just, it was not a good movie. Uh, even though it had Gene Hackman, um, Faye Dunaway, I forget who else was in it, but it wasn't very good. Um, so I, yeah, I've, I've been lucky. I don't get all bent out of shape. A movie cannot change a word of a novel. You've got the book, you've written the book, it's yours forever. And if fans get upset because the movie's, you know, something different, then I'm sorry about that. I didn't make the movie, you know, I wrote the book. Um, if you don't like the movie, don't blame me. If the movie's great, I'm going to take all the credit because I, I wrote the story. Okay. <laughs> Greg? I'm irritated with Hollywood, so all I'm going to do is tell you, every talk I give all over the country, I quote something John told me the first time I met him about Hollywood. He said, Greg, here's what you do when they want to make a movie about your book. 
You drive to the California border with your book in your hand. You very reluctantly pass that book over the state line and you snatch the check with the other hand, cash the check, drive back to Mississippi and never think about it again. And that is the wisest advice he ever gave or I ever got. Now, I'm, I want to interrupt. I want to say one thing that can cut this out of the podcast. I want to say something about John. We can watch his face turn red. I think in, in Mississippi, we take for granted that we have John here. When, back when he started writing books and when I started in about 1991, the last people we could look back who did this in Mississippi were William Faulkner and Eudora Welty. You didn't grow up as a kid thinking you could do this for a living. You, you were going to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant, or work at the tire plant or the masonite plant down the road, you know? But John came along and didn't just sell some books. He broke every record there ever was, okay, in the 90s. And they just made movie after movie after movie. And whole cottage industry of legal thrillers were created in his wake. And publishing, it's sort of like when Michael Jackson resuscitated the music business. This guy from Mississippi did this. And, and now kids who grow up in Mississippi can look at all of us and say, oh, well, I can be a writer, you know? It's, so it's just, um, I just want us all to be aware. It's easy to lose sight of what he's done, that John is really, he doesn't do what I do for a living or what Matthew does. John is like Michael Crichton or J.K. Rowling or somebody like that. And so just, I'm going to say it, thank you for everything you did, and you helped Mississippi a lot. And bookstores. Thank you, Greg. A um, couple more questions. Yes, ma'am. Question is, do we use uh, longhand or computers and which computer programs? Guys? Uh, I just, uh, for this novel, got a MacBook, and I'm struck by how much I like Apple better than PC. I love pages. Um, but writing longhand, I, I've done so much construction work. You, you ought to see my handwriting. Uh, Wrote somebody a note once, and they said, how many chickens was that? <laughs> so uh, I can't conceive. I, I do take pride in my work and try to do the best I can, but the notion of investing the amount of time it would take to do it longhand, I, I just can't imagine it. Greg? Uh, some people do do the longhand thing. I know Donna Tart writes longhand, and maybe that's why she takes seven years per book. Peter Straub writes longhand. I couldn't do it. Sometimes falling asleep. If I can't fall asleep, I'll start writing in my notebook and continue what I was working on, but I can never read it the next morning, so it's a pointless exercise. I wrote uh, Time to Kill in longhand on legal pads uh, over you know, a three-year period. Uh, I would always keep the current legal pad in my briefcase and take it with me everywhere, and if I you know, had some time, spare time in court or in Jackson, the legislature, wherever, I'd, I was always scribbling away. And uh, I kept those there in the library at Mississippi State where all my stuff is. I'd written half of the um, firm in, in longhand when I bought in about 1988 one of the first little uh, word processors. And I really enjoyed the thing. You know, it was really it's just a whole lot easier, cleaner, cleaner, quicker. Um, and you, you, can do, you, can, you can make a better product like that. And it's easier to fix things. And it, it's, it's more efficient. And I learned how to type uh, you know, pretty good in high school, pretty well in high school. And so I've all, I typed all through college, typed all through law school, and so the, the typing came easy. I wouldn't dream of going back and trying to write something longhand now. We've, we've all gotten away from longhand. You'll know, be honest, the whole culture has, and, and it's, uh, it's difficult now to go back and read stuff I've written in longhand and figure out what it was. So, yeah, forget longhand. Yes, sir. Question is, uh, my early work seemed to have a theme of uh, rich versus poor, David versus Goliath. Um, and, and have I changed? Or ha I don't think I've changed. Uh, I, don't, I don't think from a storytelling point of view, uh, I still love David versus Goliath. And I'm not going to get away from that. Um, I mean, I don't care where I am now personally. I still love the stories that I grew up with. I grew up, not grew up with, but, but practiced with as a young lawyer I represented people who didn't have any money, poor people, injured people, and, and I was always going against the banks, the manufacturers, the insurance companies. They were on the other side, okay? And it was a very clear line down the middle, you know, the, the, the two sides of the street. I knew where I was, and, and that shaped a lot of my 
beliefs, a lot of my politics, a lot of my um, a lot of my stories. And I, I'm always looking for for the story about the little guy in our society who is getting screwed either civilly or criminally with some injustice in our system. It's, it's the injustices in our systems that still keep me awake at night and won't make, won't me, make me want to write more books. Yes, ma'am. The idea for the new book, Camino Island, um, I've told this story a few times. Uh, my wife and I were, were driving to Florida, long road trip that we try to do every summer, and we um, throw the dog in the back seat and take off, you know, and have a good time. And we heard something on NPR about stolen rare books. And we can't remember exactly the details, but we started playing around with the idea of, um, of a novel, a mystery uh, involving rare, stolen rare books or, tran- or manuscripts, uh, and a bookstore owner who also dealt in the black market. And it, it, came, it came together driving down I-95 <laughs> on the way to Florida. And by the time we got to Florida, we had a pretty good uh, you know, story and then I became obsessed with it, as I always do. Around my house, and this still happens today, I mean, I'm always pitching ideas to Renee. An idea for, she has a good ear for story when it works and when it doesn't. And she's quick to say, you know, that's not, I don't like that idea. You know, that's not good. And most of the stories she doesn't like. Uh, <laughs> but, but the good ones will stick. And, and, and I'll go to the next point of starting the outline, making notes, Thinking about the full, you know, 500 pages for me, a thousand for you, um, <laughs> the ho- the whole novel, you know, the whole uh, the whole story. Uh, but it it goes back to story. I mean, I, I I I make the statement occasionally. Yeah, I got the story. I tell I tell Doubleday every January, I, I got a story. That means I, that means I've got the story for the book this year. I got a story. And I was having a conversation with a writer the other day, and I said, Yeah, I've had that story for 10 years, but I'm not going to write the book. I want somebody else to write that story. I got the story. And that's how I approach storytelling. Let me ask you a question. The way you just described process, because for me, John, the most fun is when I stumble on the idea. Maybe I do it immediately or maybe it's one that sticks. But it's when I first start at hyperspeed clicking through all the permutations, that story and working it out to what it's going to be. That's the fun part of it. The writing part is just drudgery, slavery. The thinking of it is the fun. Do you find that to be true? It's very. It's still, after a lot of books, it's still very enjoyable to piece together a rather intricate plot that will hook the reader early and surprise the reader later with an ending that you think you may know is coming, but I don't want you to know is coming, okay? That's, that's easy. The drudgery for me is that middle 300 pages when you have to sustain the narrative tension and keep the pages turning. I mean, to me, it's a deliberate effort to make you stay up late at night, reading, not writing, um, and calling sick for work, skip lunch, whatever. I, you know, I want the book to be devoured in two or three days. That's, that's, a, that's the way I, that's what I love to read, okay? I always have, and that's what I aspire to write. Occasionally, I'll do something that's a little, a little more you know, serious or complicated or whatever. Camino Island, I've never had so much fun writing a book as I had writing Camino Island. Once I got into the story, the rare books, the, the bookstore setting, the, the literary gang, the, the, you know, the, the, the place in Florida, once I got into it, uh, it was the most enjoyable time I've ever had writing a book. May I uh, tell a story on John Evans? Oh, please. Yeah. Yeah. I loved loved your character, Bruce Cable, and his eccentricity, the seersuckers and everything. And I think every great bookstore has got some sort of joie de vivre, some kind of eccentricity. I came in here to Lemuria one January, and it was a year that Johnny had been on a big business book reading Jag. And and I said, what's going on? He said, well, this year we're going to get 30 percent better. We're going to make the store 30% better. And I, I don't know a whole ton about business, but I said, what do you mean? Like 30% more sales, 30% more profitable? And he looked at me very patiently. He said, no, Matthew, 30% better. <laughs> True story. It was a good year. <laughs> what book was that, huh? 
wasn't necessarily the, it wasn't necessarily um, anything other than we needed to improve our store <laughs> and make it better. Did you succeed? Oh, about 15%. The store's gotten better. I've been hanging around for 25 years, Johnny, and the store gets better every year. Thank I mean, you. I walked in today and hadn't seen it in eight or 10 years, and it's, it's better than ever. We've been working really hard. On that note, let's wrap it up. Thank you. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you. Thank all you folks for being here. Thank you, we'll, guys. We'll see you Thank down the you. road. Thanks to my guests, Greg Isles and Matthew Gwynn and my friend Johnny Evans and the staff here at Lemuria and the volunteers and all the great customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcast, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks to our sponsor, Audible.com. See you next week on the road with Book Tour.